Welcome to the Self-Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at Self-Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. Well, good morning, South. And we're so excited for you, Parks. We are with you and for you and Abigail in this season. Thank you for sharing that moment with us. Wow, it's so great uh, to be with many of you in person and so many more of you joining us online. Recently, I've actually learned something about my vision. And it wasn't from an eye doctor. I happened to be on a paddleboard with some friends and, and we went in Uh, to enjoy some dinner together, and the evening was going, you know, getting later and later, and I'm sitting across the picnic table from my friend, and and I said, wow, it's it's really getting dark, because I was realizing I was having a little bit of trouble seeing my friends that we were enjoying dinner with, and my friend from across the dinner, the picnic table said to me, well, Yvonne, that's because you're using scotopic vision. I thought, wow, she's smart. (laughs) She said, no, my dad is an eye doctor. And he actually always talks about this. And the fact that right now that you're not seeing clearly is is the fact that you're using this vision called scotopic vision. You're not using daylight vision anymore, and you're not quite in night vision yet. Your, Your eyes are using both of them. And they're trying to readjust. And I thought, wow, isn't that interesting that the eyes go through transition? And in the middle of of moving from daytime vision to nighttime vision or opposite, there's this transition that happens in our vision. And I was reminded that this year is the year 2020 the year of vision. And we thought, wow, God, we're going to enter this year of 2020 and we're going to see you anew. We're going to see what is happening. And then slam, we get hit by a global pandemic. And I, I, I don't know about you, but that feels like actually my eyes are in transition. In fact, all of my life is in transition right now. I actually don't have a a key to a home. I am in the process of buying a townhome, and I have moved out of my current location, and I am living with some lovely people uh, along the way, but I'm, I'm physically in transition. You'll know that as a church, we're currently also in transition. We're getting ready to say our goodbyes to our executive pastor, Larry Boatwright, just next week. And you can come back and join us, and we're going to have a little send-off right after the service. And the following week, we're going to welcome a brand new lead pastor, Alex Walton. And we are in currently a transition in our church family. And I'm sure that there are many other transitions that you guys are in. In fact, this whole year has felt like transition after transition after transition. And sometimes that transition has been described as a storm. We feel like the waves are beating against us and and the water underneath us is swirling and, 
and we're not quite sure what's going to happen next. This whole year, we've been describing this season as a storm, and, and people have been saying, we're all in the same storm. We're experiencing the same kind of stuff, but we're all in different boats. Maybe we're navigating this storm in different ways, depending on what types of careers we have, what types of family situations we have, what types of financial security we have. And we're all navigating the same storm. And I'm wondering that in a year 2020, if we're thrust into a storm in transition, in order that our eyes might start to readjust, readjust. And maybe, just maybe, Jesus' invitation is as our eyes adjust, we could start to rise above the storm and start to see a little clearer. You know, we're not the only ones who have been in a storm. You know, we open up the scriptures and we find person after person in their own bit of a storm. And there's a situation where Jesus himself and his disciples are in the midst of a storm. You see, Jesus, he gathered his disciples and, and invited them to come follow him and to do as he did. He was they, working by healing people and preaching and sharing what was true and and encouraging one another. And day after day, they're in ministry, and that could be described as a storm in and of itself. But one day, Jesus and his disciples, they get a word that John the Baptist has died. John the Baptist was a forerunner to Jesus, his, his dear cousin. And he was imprisoned, um, but this news was that the, the ruler of that time actually ordered his beheading. This was not only terribly difficult to hear that he, they've lost a loved one. They've lost another ministry partner. But they lost him in a way that was completely unjust. Herod had no reason to behead John except for that his daughter asked him to, and he was too afraid of the crowds at his party. So this wave come crashes in, and I'm sure that the storm for Jesus and the disciples started to feel like emotional heaviness, hardship, and loss. And, and all they want to do in the midst of the storm is to find some respite. Maybe that's how you feel today in the midst of whatever storm you're going through. You want to find some relief. You want to find a way to just make it a little bit easier. And Jesus and the disciples in Matthew chapter 14, you can turn there, they, they really want to get away. But instead of getting away, actually the crowds start showing up because I'm sure they had questions and concerns too in their hearts about John the Baptist having been beheaded. And Jesus in that moment looks around and sees more and more people joining him and to hear from him and learn from him and he starts swelling with compassion. 
He sees the crowds and he's filled with compassion. And he, and he, he ends up spending the entire day working with his disciples and spreading out a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish. And the disciples are on their feet all day. They're working to feed 5,000 people. If that's not exhausting, I don't know what is. So in the midst of their storm, they're still working. They're still doing ministry. And I'm sure by the end of that day, as evening sets in, they're exhausted. They're troubled. Maybe they're feeling heavy. And here we have a story of Jesus and his disciples in the midst of their own kind of storm, now about to enter a real physical storm. And I think Jesus and his disciples might have something to teach us. So Lord, we just ask you that you would open the eyes of our souls, that you would allow us to see things above the storm. Jesus, give us vision, give us wisdom, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 33. And I'm going to read it slowly in order for us to sink in to this story. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was alone. But the boat, by this time, was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch, of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. They cried out in fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them, saying, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered Jesus, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water. And Jesus, and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God.
in the midst of their emotional storm, in the midst of their grief and loss, in their own kind of transition, Jesus gets away to the mountain. And we have the disciples forced on the getting away on the sea. We have both entities splitting ways, but they're getting away. And the storm doesn't stop. But I think there's something, perhaps, that we could learn from both directions that could help us adjust our sights in the midst of the storm. But when it comes to these kind of passages, I get really surprised at what's going on here. Maybe you've heard this story for many years, and this is not a surprise to you. You kind of know how the story's going to go. But there are two things that really surprise me about this story. The first is that Jesus is up on the mountain and on the land, and he sees the disciples, but he delays. Does that frustrate anyone else? <laughs> I don't know if you, from the perspective of the, the disciples, you're hitting the waves, the wind is picking up, the storm is, is a brewing. And Jesus is nowhere to be found. And Jesus is delaying. Just notice what's happening here. Jesus is on the mountain. He's praying. He's there alone. It doesn't say that he sees the disciples, but it does mention that the boat by this time was a long way from the land. It notes that it was beaten by the waves and the winds were against it. And here it says, in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. The fourth watch, if you split up the night into four parts, the fourth watch is the very last part. That is somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning. Those disciples were out there all night long. So what's going on here, Jesus? Why are you waiting? And I, and I wrestle with this with Jesus and I think, I don't understand. Why wouldn't you just go and help them? Just the, the story before, remember what I said? He overwhelmed with compassion and he fed the crowds. Where's the compassion now, Jesus? How come you're not helping them out? And Jesus reminded me that sometimes in the midst of the storm, we need to get alone with the Father. And Jesus needed to get alone with his Father. His intention was to pray. And as I sink down into my imagination of what must that have been like for Jesus to be on the mountain that day, I imagine him weeping for the loss of John the Baptist. I imagine the exhaustion, physical exhaustion, and probably just sleeping with his Father and being restored. And sometimes for us in the midst of the storm and adjusting our sights means that we need to get away to adjust our sights. And, so, and I don't know if that was difficult, if that's difficult for you, maybe you're afraid that if you get away, you're gonna feel all the emotion. But part of that is so that the Lord can come and restore. 
And then I was reading Tony Evans, and he says that sometimes when Jesus delays, he delays for a greater purpose. And so I wonder, what is that greater purpose? Okay, Jesus is is going to spend time with his father. He's being restored. But why would he spend all night walking on water? This is crazy. If you turn to the Gospel of Mark, the very exact story, Mark adds this little phrase. He says, Jesus meant to pass by them. When Jesus comes to them on the water, he's not coming to their rescue. He's not coming to fix their situation. He's just walking on water. So Jesus, why do you spend the whole night walking on water? And I spent a good time thinking, it's actually my first thought was, Peter is walking on water, and why in the world would he walk on water? And I I asked Jesus and all my research, okay, is there anything in his framework that I don't have in my framework that would give him that kind of courage to step out and walk on water? But I should have been asking the same question about Jesus, because in what would give Jesus, as a hundred percent human, Remember, often in this story, we just think of Jesus as, woo, he's super divine, he's super transcendent, he can do any kind of miracle and crazy superpower. But no, he's 100% human. So what in the world gives Jesus the courage to step out from the water's edge and start to walk on the water? This is not natural. Okay, I was paddleboarding all day yesterday and there was no walking on water, okay? <laughs> it just didn't happen. And you all know that. And we look back into the Old Testament and you know how much evidence there is of people walking on water? None. Because no other human had done that. You know, there's lots of miracles with water in the Old Testament. There's even one time that an axe had started to float, which is kind of like this but no person walking on the water until Jesus said to me, remember the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void. And what was happening? The Spirit of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, was hovering over the face of the what? The waters. Why is it a greater purpose for Jesus to delay? It's because he was remembering and learning and trusting his sonship. As he stepped out on the water, he was solidifying Father, Son, Holy Spirit, hovering over the waters. And he needed to go do this all night long to remind himself that he is the son of God. He was 100% human, and he didn't just instantly get everything downloaded to him from God. He had to step into his sonship. And I think that when we get away 
And when we spend time with, with Jesus and we adjust our eyes on God, and he starts to remind us of our own sonship, that he invites us into relationship with him as a son or daughter, and that we can walk in that sonship. The second thing that really surprised me, and I already told you, but that, that Peter is in the boat in the midst of the storm, and he sees Jesus, and he steps out. Again, why would anyone in their right mind step out of a boat unless they wanted to go swimming? There's no evidence that he would stay above the water. So why in the world would this man think that he could walk on water? Well, I'm just imagining that Peter in, in that place, of course, he's in his own emotional storm, and he's now physically in his storm. And maybe at the beginning of the storm, he thought, well, I'm a fisherman. I can do this. We can, we can handle the, the wind and the waves. This is, this is no biggie. I've been in many a storm in my life. But the longer that the storm goes on, the more that he realizes he can't do it on his own. And during the night, he would be using the scotopic vision, the night vision. And that moment when, when Jesus comes toward them on the water in, in scotopic vision, we're using our cones in our eyes, which means that we're seeing more things in black and in white. We see contrast. And so in the middle of the storm, he sees this big blob of light, of white, probably. And what do you think of if you see a big blob of white in the middle of darkness? A ghost! He thinks it's a ghost. That totally makes sense to me. That does not surprise me. <laughs> but he wells up with fear. Now, this weekend, I was staying in my friend's little cottage, and I was also using scotopic vision, and I happened to be in a cottage with white walls this time. And I looked up and there was a huge wolf spider about two feet from my face. <laughs> okay, welling up with fear, okay? I think I get it. <laughs> uh, when you're using that kind of vision, things don't, aren't clear. But at that moment, if it was the fourth watch of the night, the sunlight was starting to rise. And perhaps it was at that moment where his eyes shift into mesopic vision and he's in transition and, and he looks a little closer. And in the storm, he hears a voice. Jesus take, says, take heart. It's me. You don't need to be afraid in the midst of your storm. I'm here. In the midst of the storm, sometimes we need to lock our eyes in to Jesus. To see him in the midst of the storm. And maybe we don't see him quite clearly at first, but we're willing to go the distance, to adjust our eyes and to see him. And that takes some intentionality. That takes some courage, just like Jesus 
says, take courage. And that adjusting and that fixing our gaze on Jesus, this is essentially what faith is. It's that simple. A.W. Tozer says that actually fixing the gaze of our soul on Jesus is faith. That us turning our gaze is, is trusting in him. But still, what gives him the kind of courage to step out of the boat? Sure, I can make sense of the situation. It makes sense that he thinks he's a ghost. It also makes sense that he's starting to realize that it's Jesus. But what gets him to step out of the boat? Well, if for Jesus, during his time away, he was solidifying his sonship by looking back at what was true. I am under the impression that Peter was solidifying his sonship by looking forward. Because in that moment of transcendence, this image coming through the darkness of the cloud, and Jesus saying, it's me. He's come through the heavens. And Peter looks up and he sees Jesus. If that's you, call me to come. And isn't that the same kind of hope and the same kind of desire that we're all looking forward to? Is that Jesus promises that one day he's going to come. He's going to return in some essence of transcendence. And it's probably not going to make sense to us at the time. But when he says, it's me, take courage. Don't be afraid that we say, Jesus, if it's you, tell us to come. We want to be with you. And I think that for a moment, Peter sort of leaves his present and, and thinks that Jesus is coming for him in the end. That he's entering his, his future glory. And so he steps out of the boat thinking, okay, Jesus, here it is. Kind of like those people that have had some like after death experiences and have lived to share about it. This moment where you think Jesus is coming for me and, and we're going to do this and I'm going to be with him. And yet, there, something is different. This is not Jesus. This is not the end. He's looking around. He sees the waves. I'm physically, I think I'm floating. <gasps> I'm hovering over the waters. And he starts to sink. He realizes he's back in the present. And he, so he needs Jesus. He says, save me. And Jesus saves him. And here we have Jesus saying, Peter, this was little faith. But it was faith. It, he didn't say you didn't have any faith. Actually, I think he had a lot of faith. But as he turns and he looks and he adjusts his eyes back to the storm, he sort of loses his focus. And his faith starts to waver. And isn't that true about us too? When we look at our storms, they seem to overwhelm us. Maybe some people might even describe it as, I think I'm drowning. <laughs> it feels like too much with the tension or the, the stress or the loss or the grief or whatever kind of turmoil you might find yourself in. 
So what's going to give us the courage to fix our eyes on God the Father or fix our eyes on Jesus the Son? It's actually the person of Jesus Christ. Our hope is in a person. And the goal of fixing our eyes on him is not just to fix our situation. The goal of fixing our eyes on him is that we would grow in faith. And because Jesus says that he is the alpha, the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. In Colossians, it says that he is the firstborn of all creation. He is the image of the invisible God. It says that he obediently went to death, was buried conquered death, raised from the dead, ascended to heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And there he is exalted above all the storms in our life. And it is the person of Jesus Christ that gives us the courage to look up and adjust our vision. The courage to allow our vision to transform, to see clearly. And I know that sometimes these messages on walking on water, sometimes they seem quite a bit idealistic. And I'll be the first one to admit that normally that's how I feel about pastors or preachers who talk about this. So let me just give you some really practical ways that we can fix and adjust our eyes on Jesus so that we can start to rise above that storm and we don't just sink in the middle of it. You guys all have these on right now, right? We have masks on. And we have been mandated to cover our noses and our mouths. But what is not hidden? Our eyes. Perhaps this is a season that we need to pay attention to what we do with our eyes. And as we fix our eyes on God... Maybe, just maybe, it will lift our spirits. How do we do that? Well, I know that, especially this weekend, being in God's word has helped me lift my eyes. And I recommend that to all of you. Look, use your eyes, get your physical Bible, put away your devices, get your physical Bible, and look at the words of Jesus. Look at the character of Jesus. Look at all the stories that have gone back. Just like Jesus had to look back, we can do the same thing by using the word of God. And the way that we know what's going to happen also in the future is we, we read it. So let's look to God in the word. And then with our masks on, let's also look to the good. Because in that moment where, where Peter is trembling in his faith, he looks to the wind and the waves, to the storm. But let's turn our eyes toward the good. If you're a perfectionist, like I have some perfectionistic tendencies in my family, we tend to look for all the things that are going wrong, the ways that things are not right, all the things that need to be fixed, the things that are uncomfortable, are frustrating. But let's turn our eyes toward the good. 
Take your mask and go for a gratitude walk. Just go look at all the things that are good and call them out. Say, Jesus, I love that. I love that. I love that. I love that. Thank you for that. And my guess is the more that we look to God, the more that we look to the good around us, it's going to help us rise above the storm. The other thing good around us is every single person that you meet. I'm gonna challenge you to look people in the eyes. You might not be able to give them a big giant squeeze, but you can really look them in the eyes. You can see that they are spiritual people, that they have souls that matter. Look people in the eyes and see the good in them. And I think that the moments that we start to use our eyes, our physical eyes, it's actually gonna help our soul's eyes to look to God as well. It's gonna grow our faith. It's gonna, we're gonna receive joy receptors in our brains, and we're gonna receive love and compassion and nurturing and hope and peace. And I think that those fruits are going to be the evidence of you rising above the storm because you've allowed yourself to fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on God. Fix your eyes on good because that's fixing our eyes on the goal. The goal right now is not for God just to fix our situations. The goal is that we might have faith and that he might grow that faith and we solidify our sonship in this season. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for your word. Jesus, I thank you so much for your example. God, Jesus, even though it didn't make sense to me at first, I'm slowly getting it. I'm getting that you needed to walk with your father. And I'm so thankful that, that we have your word. I'm thankful that we have one another and I'm thankful that we don't have to cover our eyes in this season so that we might learn to adjust our sights in the midst of this storm and watch as you help us rise above this storm. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, we're going to spend some time in communion, so if you're online with us, go ahead and grab those elements. And before we get started there, I want to give you just an invitation to help you uh, create an environment where we can fix our eyes on Jesus. We're gonna open up a room at South, the Connections Room, on Mondays and Thursdays. And this is going to be open hours where you can come to a prayer room. And it'll be a space where you can, you can read the word and you can fix your eyes on God. There's gonna be different guides that you can pick up and you can fix your eyes on what's good. And that's my hope in this season. Since our building is not being used by many other outside groups, I just wanted to offer the opportunity to come. We're gonna be open during office hours from 10 o'clock to one o'clock on Monday and Thursday, but then also right after work. And if you get off work at about five o'clock, come on over and readjust your eyes before you head home to a family or roommates or whomever you happen to live with. And that's just a way for us to give you a space and an intentional time to get away and to fix your eyes on Jesus. But now we're gonna fix our eyes on him because communion is something that he told us to continue to do. 
This helps us remember that Jesus died for our sins when, when we couldn't do it on our own. And this is us stepping out in faith and saying, Jesus, we trust you. We trust your sacrifice. The fact that you came in human flesh and you allowed that flesh to be broken for us. You allowed that flesh to bleed for us. And by doing so, you are taking the punishment. You're taking our place. And Jesus, we're so thankful for that. And as we tune our hearts toward communion, I'll ask you to take the bread. The night before Jesus was betrayed, he actually took the bread. He broke it and he gave thanks to his Father in heaven. And he said, when you do this, I want you to take the bread and I want you to eat it in remembrance of my body being broken for you. And right after that, he took a cup filled with wine and we're gonna take a cup filled with juice today. And he said, this is the cup it's a new covenant. It's a new agreement. You're going to be able to take my sacrifice as your own, and I'm going to commit to being here always, and I'm going to commit to returning to you and inviting you to be in my presence forevermore. So we thank you, Jesus, for your character. Jesus, that you are the one who is faithful and true, and we lift our eyes, we adjust our eyes to see your sacrifice today. We trust you, and we ask you that you continue to give us vision and wisdom in the midst of this storm as we receive the sacrifice that you made for us. Amen. Let's sing. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. You can give online at southfellowship.org slash give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks for listening, South Family. Have a great rest of your day.